Welcome to AUCD Network Narratives, where we share real stories from our members. I'm your host, J.D. Flores, a self-advocacy discipline coordinator at the Strong Center for Developmental Disabilities and the co-chair for the Council on Leadership and Advocacy. Join us as we hear from inspiring leaders within our network working to make a change. Inclusive research has been a central theme for the past year in the AUCD Network. In this episode, J.D. is joined by Micah Peace and Beth Grosso as they talk about their experiences as co-researchers at the Center for Start Services at the University of New Hampshire, you said. Micah is an autistic, multiply disabled advocate and community organizer from Louisville, Kentucky. Grounded in an intersectional, interdisciplinary approach, as well as their own personal experiences of disability, Micah strives to foster collaboration between disability service providers and the disability community to promote true access, inclusion, and empowerment. Beth has over a decade of experience in the field of intellectual and developmental disabilities and mental health needs. She has a background in leadership, training development and delivery, program evaluation, qualitative research, and clinical supervision. She's a lifelong learner who values teamwork, collaboration, and diversity in all forms. JD, Micah, and Beth discuss the Truth and Reconciliation Project and how they have navigated some of the difficulties of participatory co-researching. After you listen in, check out our show notes for more information about their work. So my first question really is, as I was thinking about a conversation with you all, it's about research and, and how folks with disabilities participate in the process of research and what that really looks like. Because for me, it makes me a lot. <laughs> I just get really anxious and I feel like research is rocket science and I don't necessarily know where I find my place in that process or even if it, you know, if I bring things of value to the table. So what has your journey through that as you work with folks with disabilities look like? Sure. So as a disabled person myself, I definitely was anxious when START first reached out to me to get involved. The Truth and Reconciliation Project is actually the second or third that I've been involved with at START. So it's gotten a lot easier for me. I've built a lot of trust over time, but um, I got really, really nervous in the beginning because they really got my name just from me, like sharing my own story in just amongst other disabled people and someone passed my name along and said, Hey, you might want to talk to this person. And so like in a way, like when they approached me, like even that hit a little bit different, I think than a lot of other avenues, like the more typical avenues that people might think of as like inroads to research, because they literally reached out and just said, you know, we've heard that you have spoken openly about some negative experiences that you've had And we're doing a research project looking for people's, like, lived real-life experiences. Would you be interested in helping more people share stories like you shared? And just that kind of, like, the way it was phrased, the way that I was approached, it kind of spoke to a different orientation toward people like myself, people with disabilities, than I think you, like, often see in, like... Because prior to that, like, I I thought about it really similarly to you, J.D. I think of, like, old white dudes in white coats, and I think of, like, the statistics class that I, like, almost could not pass in college, you know? And so I think, like, what... So for a long time, I was just, like, my only thoughts about research were just, like, wow, not for me. And, like, having the anxiety, too, that you mentioned, like, 
I'm autistic and a lot of things you hear about autism research are, it's all toward the ends of like a cure or making us less ourselves and being able to work with a group of folks who like are decidedly not at all about that. And indeed about like helping disabled folks find our voices and lift those up and how do I say they treated me like an expert and I'd never really been treated that way before like an expert in my own experience and in what it's like to like grow up living through these systems and so like over time it's given me confidence in this kind of project and and process that it can be helpful and it can be accessible to other people with disabilities and it's also helped me build confidence in myself it's crazy you said like maybe a half a dozen things that I can relate to on a like deep personal level I struggled with statistics I took statistics three times before I was like whoo I finally made it and I almost didn't make it out of college because of statistics and actually I was like half a point shy from getting the grade I needed and I begged the professor in an email like listen what I gotta do to get this half a point because me and math we just don't we don't math together well and so I need this half a point but also like in terms of research I think as a woman of color who also happens to be disabled you know they don't talk nicely about my body or about my family's body or about anything like we're really expendable and that's really seen in research in my opinion at least you know how expendable we really are to researchers and, and the ways that they digest our families. And I don't know, man, the way they unpack everything is so uncomfortable to me because something to me that I hold sacred is, is talked about in ways that I'm like, wait a minute, like you missed the whole point of that. And so I, I, I get what you're saying exactly when you get to just be in a space. So can you tell me a little bit about either of or of you, Beth or Micah, about the, the, the project, the, the Truth and Re- Reconciliation Project? Can you tell me about, about that? Before I introduce that, I just wanted to make a couple comments on what Micah shared. Sure. Research, I began on this project as a grad student, as a as sort of a, a research intern. And so research was definitely like rocket science to me when I started. But it quickly became apparent that this was a project that was had very intentional goals. And it was a team that was really living the values that they had set forth uh, for this project. And what that looked like is making space for experts such as Micah to come in and share with us what we were missing. You know, JD, you mentioned that, you know, like there's when you hear the narratives from a researcher, it often doesn't reflect your experience. And this pro this research team was very cognizant that we had blind spots and we needed to engage in a co-researching effort in order to make sure that we minimized as many of those as we could. That's so important, though. Um, I, I think that as we work towards participatory research, right, as we start, you know, giving equity in the research space, like that's really important to acknowledge where the blind spots are, what's what's missing. I made a, a choice to use abonics in every space that I approach and enter. So like being able and having the freedom to be listed as an author in a research paper, but also being able to be me when I present on this research paper is uber important so that, you know, more folks can see like, all right, I don't have to put on a mask to really exist in this space. Exactly. Masks off. For and, bringing, and like that bringing like the fullness and the wholeness 
of who you are and where your life experience has guided you to be in life. Like it actually makes the research richer. I would agree. I mean, it makes it, so I'm getting my master's right now and it's been a process. You know, when I, I see the way they talk about things about people with disabilities in general, or maybe like the youth development kind of pieces of it all. And I'm like, well, no, that's not life for kids with disabilities. That's not how it really works. And some research is treated as like, this is the life. Like these are, this is the lines you got to go by. If if you miss this mark, then your life is off track. And I think it's so important to have a shift in research for specifically for that, especially as we start talking about and, and describing people's lives that isn't like part of the main culture, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like you being free, Micah, to be autistic and, and to not have to, you know, change your makeup or how you address folks or how you talk to folks to really see yourself represented in that way. And also just to teach people, you know, as we're setting foundations for future teachers, doctors, whomever, that we're talking about big picture things. We're talking about real people with real lives. Absolutely. You said it, JD, research for me is like the, and and what I've come to learn about research in general is that it's really sort of the foundation upon which a lot of policy and practice sits and is informed by. So if we don't start valuing lived experience and co-research in in our research practices, why would we expect society to follow suit with that? You know, like we we have sort of a responsibility to model the way. I think Start, which is the program that I work for and that was one of the co-PIs on the Truth and Reconciliation project, we already had that value that the people and families that we're serving, that their voice and perspective comes first and foremost. And so often it's decentered out of the narrative and objectified. And so those were values that we brought into this research project and that really guided everything that we did. So what would you say are some of the barriers that, you know, as you're working through this, as you're, because not only are you changing the narrative of research, but you're also maybe potentially changing the ways in which your institution, you know, does research from here on forward. As I see it, and as I've experienced it so far, I think that there are, like, two really big kind of categories that barriers exist in. Um, One of them is much more abstract, and it's the, just the overarching attitudes, frankly, white supremacy and ableism in academia, certain kinds of values, like everything has to happen in a very specific regimented kind of way, rather than being more of a like spiral iterative process. And that, that there is typified kind of like normal or prescriptive expected way of doing things. Um, And if you deviate from that, then that's not real research, or you're not doing it right, or it's not objective enough, which I think, as Beth noted earlier, when you come to research with the understanding that research and science are not objective or apolitical at all, it frees you to actually engage with those biases and and look for solutions. Because then the other category of barriers that I see are, are the practical ones, right? Are like the small amount of time, like the time constraints when it comes to IRB paperwork and procedure. The sheer amount of information that you have to t- generate and take in 
sometimes. But I find that all of those kinds of practical things end up coming back to the attitudes that you're approaching things with. Like, if you expect that, if you go in with the understanding or the assumption that, oh, people with disabilities can't communicate or they won't be able to answer these kinds of questions. It affects everything. I've said to Beth before, like, you can, your logical process can be, like, completely sound, can be perfect, but if your base premise is wrong, it doesn't matter because you're always going to, it's always going to be wrong. I feel like I could say some of that better. (laughs) No, I think that 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 makes sense, though. I, I think that, again, if I just put on my disability hat I think it's important to to note that if you if we are starting off and you're like nah she won't know she don't she can't she can't answer this she can't speak to this she doesn't have the verbiage for this then we're never going to get to a point where I could really be participating in something and, and really be considered an author or even an expert on whatever it is that we're discussing so I think that a lot of that is attitudinal and I think it just speaks to how we haven't really moved away from the belief that people with disabilities can't do. You know, like I think it's, you know, structural ableism, just like structural racism impacts research. Like these two things happen hand in hand. And because we can't get away from the the, the archaeal like system that exists, like we're not improving, right? And so I guess my next question really is, if you could like work with the RIBs, you know, train them up, to be more conscious and aware of their unconscious bias, what would you do? Like, what would you say? Like, what is it that you would infuse into their system? Time spent with people who experience a various range of disabilities. I think that your lens expands exponentially when you know somebody who experiences, in this case, an intellectual or developmental disability and, you know, mental health needs. So that's the first thing that comes to mind is just sort of increasing familiarity with the air quotes populations of, of folks that were, uh, that were talking about and proposing to co-research with. I think I would also like to encourage them to look at the work that we've done, the, the truth and reconciliation project, say, and familiarize themselves more with the history Um, Because I think that what has kind of happened is a sort of, like, knee-jerk reaction to going from, we treated people as completely subhuman, and that is wrong, and look at all this bad stuff that has happened, but now they're, I feel like they've gone very hard in the other direction, or an overcorrective direction where... People with intellectual and developmental disabilities are a protective class, and and it often... A protected class, and it and it and it prevents. It may, I think it, that it makes that that even that sort of language makes researchers feel very anxious, and as though it's more of a liability than a benefit, which is like a really tragic, incorrect message to send. So to kind of speak to that, Micah, and this was something that I was thinking about as you were talking earlier about sort of structural barriers to co-researching. I think one of the themes that we've established already in this conversation we're having is 
sort of we have to live our values and there has to be a firm and deep a belief and not not a commitment but a belief in your bones that co-researching is research and is the only way to conduct research that touches the lives of people with IDD-MH. So we can focus better and we can address issues around IRB, for example, and some of the structural barriers that might exist. We can do that better if we have that belief system because it gives us that resolve that we need. We have encountered barriers in the work that we've done around people's perceptions and um, accessibility as, you know, some of the more practical barriers that Micah explained. But it was all approached with this sort of, here's an issue, how do we address it? And we did. And we did that in a collaborative way too. So what was some of the motivation behind all of that, behind the, the big change? I'm fortunate that this was the first research project I ever worked on. And so this is the only kind of research I know. This model, I don't know what, you know, air quotes, traditional research is like, because I was introduced to research through a co-researching model. I think what brought us to the space of embarking on the Truth and Reconciliation Project was Start's belief in the full, meaningful lives of people with IDD, MH, and their families. And that was a guiding value and mission of the START model. And then that extended into this Truth and Reconciliation Project. And we strategically partnered with institutions that had those shared values. So we partnered with Georgetown University's National Center for Cultural and Linguistic Competence, led by Tawara Good. And then we partnered with the University of Florida's Dr. Jessica Kramer, who had a very strong background in conducting and researching inclusive research. Um, and that's actually how we came to meet Micah, uh, was through Jessica's previous work. So it really was sort of a, a meeting of the minds with the precondition that everybody had to have that shared belief that people with IDDMH were not, they were not going to be tokenized. They were not going to be called in for particular aspects of the project, that they were co-researchers at every stage and every phase of the research project. And this project was also inspired by the earlier work of Dr. Tawara Good, who did a very similar um, truth and reconciliation project that was specific to a lot of the medical violence and injustice that Black uh, Americans have experienced historically. And Dr. Good and Dr. Joan Beasley, one of the co-founders of the START model, are close colleagues. Um, and it was Joni who said, you know, look, this... This has happened to people with disabilities as well. And Dr. Beasley comes to this work from a family member's perspective, but has a very, very staunch dedication to uplifting disabled people's voices. I also have been very fortunate to only really have participated in participatory action research through Dr. Kramer and Dr. Beasley. Well, that's dope. That's exciting because that means that hopefully, like, as this spills over, the the flow will just change and it will continue to be filled in this way. And we will continue to be, you know, proactive about it and really give people equity in this space. 
And I think just for clarification, if can we sp like really talk about like what the truth and reconciliation? reconciliation? Yeah, we never got to yeah. that, did we? <laughs> And we keep talking about it, but can we're talking around it? Okay, so sure. Micah told me I was on first for this, so and I listened to Micah. So, what is the Truth and Reconciliation Project? So, the overarching goal of the Truth and Reconciliation Project was to support people with the lived experience of IDD and mental health needs and their families and researchers. So, sort of a collective trifecta to learn how to partner in the conduct of research. And specifically for the purposes of that project, we were looking at comparative effectiveness research. So that was sort of like the overarching goal. Like, how can we help these three groups of people work collaboratively together? So the first thing that we did was we developed and hosted truth and reconciliation forums. When I when I say we, I, I want to be very intentional that this was these forums were developed with Micah and other colleagues as part of our research project team with lived experience of IDDMH. And these forums were held in four different states virtually because this unfortunately happened during COVID. And we w collaborated with youth and young adults and their family members to host these forums. And these forums went over the history of harms uh, toward people with IDDMH in research. We talked about what research is. We talked about who a researcher is, JD, which kind of goes back to your original question around, you know, research can seem really intimidating to people who have never participated in it. And so part of our goal was to sort of demystify research and demystify who researchers are so that people began to think about themselves as potential researchers. So after we held these forums, we got feedback from the people who had participated. And we used that feedback in combination with the Truth and Reconciliation Forum content, and we developed a transforming research forum. And we brought that to the National Research Consortium on IDD and MH. And we presented it to a group of 40 to 50 researchers all have an interest in research in this field. And then we also surveyed them for their feedback um, so that we could talk about what worked and what we could do better next time. Because the hope is that these forums could be replicated uh, and used uh, by any organization that wanted to convene a forum. So that's the long and short of it. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you your work and what y'all both do and how you're really trying to change the way research is done because it's such an important piece, um, particularly for folks of color and those who are disabled um, as, we're, as we work and kind of chisel our way uh, to equity. I am grateful to have, you know, had this conversation with y'all. I appreciate y'all joining us today for our podcast. Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat, JD. For sure. I mean, thanks, JD. Thank you for tuning in to AUCD Network Narratives. If this story has inspired you to make a change at your center or program, use the link in our show notes for resources and tools to help you lead on. We'd love to connect with you. So visit the AUCD website and click on the submit your story button at the top. We hope to hear from you soon.